Welcome back to MedWretched, friends. We hope you're doing really well out there. Yeah. And we're glad that you're here. And we're glad that we're here. Super glad. (laughs) Yeah. Really, really, really glad. How's life? Pretty chill, honestly, up here. Yeah. Yeah. Us too, you know? It's mellow right now, which is nice, you know? After just, like, constant life change, it's like... Yeah, okay. Now we're just kind of vibing. I feel like the last couple of weekends I've just been like, you know what? I'm just I'm fucking here. I'm vibing. I yeah. put up some trellising for my plants because they're going a little cray-cray. Oh my gosh, mine too. Just like been sitting out in my yard and like planning everything for the future. And like, it's Aww. been really, really lovely. So That's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of same. I mean, my squashes i have these mystery squash i don't remember what i bought i bought some plants and just like like i blacked out <laughs> at a garden store and i woke just up with, like, all these at the garden store. Yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> you gotta get through life somehow you know so um i think they're gonna be spaghetti okay. squash I, like I don't it. know, but they're taking over my whole yard. <laughs> I like, love this. My husband's like, I um, I don't know if I should mow over this or like what. I'm like, that was the exact yeah. conversation we had today because I was admiring my pumpkins, and my partner he was like, these guys escaped because they like climbed over. <laughs> yeah. Yes, mine too. Yep, another tree. Yeah, and he was like, I'm. He was like, he was like, I'm gonna mow over you. And I was like, no, those are my babies. I know. Don't touch my babies. I think my jack-o'-lantern pumpkins are actually not doing that well. So we might end up carving some spaghetti squashes this year because I'm okay with spaghetti squash. My husband doesn't like it. And I don't know if my daughter likes it. So I might just go in really like old school Samhain. Ah, fully Celtic. Ah. Like every. Get some turnips in there. Ah, I love this. I'm a very good pumpkin carver, so this might be how I am very impressed by your pumpkin carving skills. Yeah. I think I'm going to end up donating some of mine to work for the kiddos to some kind of painting sensory thing. Oh, yeah. My kid loves pumpkin painting. I hear the sound of a husband making a blueberry pie Mm -hmm. downstairs. So um, just listeners, be warned that at some point I might be taking a break for some pie and you might just hear some "Mm -hmm." Ah, (laughs) ah. (laughs) mm-hmm while Mick is telling her story. Well, good luck with that. I'm not going to say that you won't need some comfort foods uh, listening to this case. Gosh, we never plan our transitions, but they work out so well, like 85% of the time. Uh, Every once in a while, we have a herky-jerky one, and then I just kind of dive into the awkwardness, so. Yeah, and I I like to think that the awkwardness kind of works Mm -hmm. for us, you know? But, yeah, so I don't know anything about your case today because you, like, rearranged the Mm -hmm. schedule, and I haven't looked at it, so I have, like, no idea what you're doing aside from what you told me last week. I don't know if you would know this case. It was a pretty big case when it happened but it was also kind of like a hyper local hyper kind of community based case Mm, yeah so maybe a lot of hubbub and then a quick die down on the the attention maybe so i'm gonna dive right into it heads up is a rough one guys it's just Mm. it's real rough there's there's no getting out of it and there's no redeeming anything in this case so now that you're ready for that 
Yes, I have my ginger ale to settle my tummy, so we're good. We are headed back to St. Paul today, and we are actually headed back to the Hmong community. Oh, are we really? Yes, we are. Hmm. Hello Hello again, again, friends. friends. So I listen to a lot of news reports, a lot of podcasts to do my best to pronounce these names. That Mm. said, I am certain that I'm missing some kind of inflections and whatnot. Yeah. I'm doing my best. That's all, all I can say, so... You're doing your best. So let's dive right into it. Yeah, do it. So we are going to head to September 3rd, 1998. Mm, Around 7, 10 p.m., a phone call comes in to 911 in St. Paul, Minnesota. A woman with a heavy accent, speaking broken English, sounding dazed and disoriented, is on the line. The woman mumbles as the dispatcher tries to direct her questions. The dispatcher is having a really hard time getting any clear answers or understanding what's being said. After repeated questioning, the woman finally mumbles that she tried to hang herself. Oh. The dispatcher latches onto that and works to try to collect more information from the disoriented woman, asking for her locations, her injuries, if she needs an ambulance. The woman in her days just keeps mumbling, keeps repeating, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. The dispatcher asks, you don't know what? And the woman says, I don't know why I killed my kids. Oh my gosh. Eventually, dispatch is able to get an address and immediately send the police and ambulances. The police arrive at a small townhouse in the McDonough housing projects, a small public housing project heavily populated by Hmong refugees and their families. The police had been to this particular home many times before. Um. So much so that they knew who to expect there. Hmm. They thought that they knew what they were getting into. Okay. Interesting. Any thoughts before we go on? Well, I'm already upset. (laughs) I'll tell you that. Um, it's okay. I I just feel like that's not what I was expecting from that 911 call at Mm -hmm. all. Like, obviously, we're talking about a crime, a murder. So I was expecting like, this was the call from the person who stumbled upon a scene, or something like that. So when you said, I don't know why I killed my kids. I just was, it's just really, really jarring, like crazy jarring. I'm also kind of annoyed at like, as an aside, that there wasn't somebody at dispatch that they could talk to that spoke mm-hmm. Hmong because it's extremely, extremely common, common in that area. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they do now, sure they do now, but it seems like bad business to not have that. So I was just like annoyed by that too. But yeah, I just, I mean, like that was jarring and I'm like, uh, what are we yeah. walking into? Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, so tell me what we're walking into. I'm nervous. Um, Like I said, the police had been to the house before, responding to domestic violence calls, child neglect calls, and similar complaints. Police had known the parents, Tao Hang and Ko Her, and their six children well. They had offered the children encouragement and support when they responded to these domestic violence. They had talked the children through their parents' fights and their volatile relationship. They had offered supports mm. to the family. So 
most of the domestic or all of the domestic calls previously had been between the parents? Yes, there had been, and we'll get more into it later. And, and yeah, neglect. We'll get into yeah. it later. The child neglect charges were minor, like not attending school and things like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Police officers Sheila Joff and Joseph Chaffee arrived at the townhouse and attempted to open the door, but the door is blocked on the bottom. They keep pushing and pushing. It's not heavily blocked. When they get inside, they look down and they see the body of Ko Her, the 24-year-old mother. What? Was she not the one that made the call? Listen. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Do I have you on the, like, on the hook? Yes. Do you see my face? <laughs> her is found out of breath, confused with a brown extension cord wrapped around her neck and a phone in her hand still connected to the 911 operator. Oh, that's why you wanted me to listen. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm listening now. And she is found still breathing, barely conscious, and wearing a red silk dress. Hmm. Emergency technicians aren't far behind the police and immediately tend to her. Police continue to make their way through the home. Like I said, it's they know this house. They only need to take a few more steps inside before they find the six-year-old A laying face down on the floor with a piece of black cloth wrapped around her neck. Oh, God. When they find her, her body is still warm. Poor baby. Officer Joff rips the cloth off and attempts to resuscitate her while Chaffee runs upstairs. Mm. Chaffee knew where the children's bedrooms were, and so he starts to look for them. Wow, that's how well they know this place. That's crazy. He makes it to the top of the landing where he sees the body of 11-year-old Kwa A, the oldest boy, laying on the landing with yet another black piece of cloth around his neck. Jeez. Chaffee glances into one of the bedrooms to see another of the boys lame, strangled with the same black cloth. Sadly, the records don't indicate which of the other remaining four children this was. Seriously? Yeah. It, we know that it was one of the other sons. It was either the, eld the second eldest son, Samson, or the youngest son, seven-year-old, Tang Lung. Gotcha. EMTs continue okay. to just flood into the home, attending to kids. Yeah. Joff and Chaffee then head into the basement. In the basement, they find the third boy and his oldest sister, Nali, both with black cloths around their neck. Oh, my God. The last child, five-year-old Tang Ki, is found in the basement bathroom, once again with the same black cloth around her neck. Each child is found in a different room, in different states of rigor, but all with the same cause of death, the strangulation. Huh. I mean, my first question is she was married, right? She was so... divorced at this point. Divorced. Okay, so her ex-husband was not living in the home? Yes. Okay. Tao Hang was living outside of the home. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly awful to even think about, like, walking through that scene. So, I mean, my heart is, like, 
bleeding for those babies and also for the officers that had to, you know, like you, you respond to stuff, I'm sure as, as a police officer, especially in an urban place and you see some stuff, but mm-hmm. you're not going to walk into a home with the bodies of many, many, many children yeah. very often in your career, you know? I read interviews with Chaffee later and he said he legitimately experienced PTSD after this case. How could um, you not, to be honest? He had to take a break from the force. He ended up moving out of the state just because he's like, mm. I can't, I can't continue living here. Yeah. My other question that's feels, um, you know, frightening, but like, I was also just thinking, logistically speaking, and I guess you answered it kind of with them being in different stages of rigor and liver mortis, but just logistically the fact that there were a couple of older kids in the mix too, you know, I presume like teenage boys are probably about the same size as their mom, preteen boys, you know. Ko was very slight. She was mm-hmm. only about five feet tall and no more than a hundred pounds. And yeah. the oldest boy, Kwa, was 11. Okay. So he may have been about the same size. Yeah. So I just was like, how in the world do you just logistically even do that? You know, like what's, the, what was the process? What, what did that day look like in that house? And did this happen over multiple days? Like, I'm sure you're going to talk about hopefully some more of the pathology, but like, was this something that happened over multiple days or a day and a night or something that, cause it doesn't sound like a spree if everyone's in a different room. I'm just very confused and upset. So you talk more. Lots of questions that will eventually be answered. Okay. The mother, Koher, is treated on the front steps of her townhouse apartment while investigators search the home. Mm. They find eight pieces of a torn photo, a medical assistance application with the names of the children all written into it and then heavily crossed out. And seven drinking glasses empty on the table. Ah. So that's how. Okay. Interestingly enough, because I know exactly where your mind's going, was their poisoning. Mm-hmm. When they tested the glasses, they were not able to find traces of poison. Interesting. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I thought, like, crumbled up sleeping pills or something to make them drowsy or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. They weren't able to find any traces of it. And Interesting. I'm I'm so curious about those seven glasses because they weren't able to find anything else. Yeah. So as they're treating her on the front steps, the neighbors obviously begin to gather around. Mm-hmm. Some of them knew the family. Others did not. One person in the housing complex had even commented that he had seen the woman in the home, but he thought that she was one of the children. Oh, wow. Well, she was really young. You said 24. She was 24. Yes. Mm. Her just her slightness made it really hard to believe from outsiders that she was the parent of these rambunctious kids. Yeah. And well, she would have had her first kid at 15. No, 13. Because she had an 11 year old, right? Yep. Wow. We're going to tell her's entire story. Okay. Because there's the only way to understand how we got to this moment is to understand the entire story. Yeah. Jeez. Okay, we're going in. Oh, we're going in. Her life was steeped in trauma from the very beginning. Mm. 
One reporter would describe her life as, quote, so filled with abuse that she decided to kill her six children rather than see them endure similar mistreatment. Interesting. So now we're, we're going to learn what that life was. Yeah. I have so many questions. Okay. Do you want to ask him now or do you want to see if we answer them? Well, my question is just like, that quote is really interesting because did she kill her children to spare them abuse from her own hand or was it coming from somebody else? Let's put a pin in that and see if we have an answer to it later. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Ko was born December 31st, 1973 in Laos mm. to her parents, Nia Kauher and Fla Vang. The family, like many others in the area at the time, were subsistence farmers. So mm. we're talking long days, busy days, hard work, not a ton of free time. Yeah. She was actually born a twin. Hmm. However, her sister Ka would die shortly after birth due to medical illness. That's sad. Shortly after that, however, in 1974, her parents would divorce, reportedly because her mother Pla Vang just simply was struggling to deal with the grief related to Ka's death. Mm. If you remember back to our Hang Lee episode... At the time in the 70s, Laos was dealing with a lot of the fallout from the Korean War. Yeah. They were still under attack by the Korean army for their role in supporting the U.S., and the U.S. kind of dipped with little to no support. Yeah, good job. Yeah, good job. So suffice it to say that her home in Laos was not the safest place to grow up. Right. It offered very little in the way of physical security and safety. And in terms of her family, it also turned out to offer very little in the way of emotional safety and security. Mm. Her's father would retain custody of her and would eventually remarry. Her recalls that her stepmother was very cruel to her, exclusionary, and physically abusive. A social worker who would later go on to work with her after she arrived in the States would say that her was treated like an orphan. No one loved her. Mm. God, that's sad. At the age of four, family fled Laos for a refugee camp in Thailand. Once arriving at the camps, and this is true for all families, just to kind of understand this jarring transition from being subsistence farmers to living in a refugee camp. From complete independence, and although you're busy and it's hard work, to complete dependence. You have no work, no productivity, no ability to earn, no ability to feel good or proud, no ability to attend to your own needs outside of the public rations that you're given. Yeah, and probably like just very little external stimuli in a lot of ways too. Very little. I was reading just kind of some stories about the refugee camps and kind of what the daily life was like and they said it was just there was nothing to do and so when people reach that level of there's nothing that tension and that bickering and that gossip and that kind of internal that infighting that's where all of that goes right yeah it's like the natural primal way of entertaining ourselves you know Mm -hmm. we talk about other people and we pick fights yeah exactly and that and that is exactly what happened here and you also kind of remove them from all of their kind of natural 
community and cultural supports. Mm, yeah. And then also suddenly like your ways of life don't make any sense anymore. Right. Yeah. Because now they're also in a totally different country. So they're mm-hmm. expatriated too. That's so yeah. interesting. While they're living in this camp, her was living with her family essentially in this like 10 foot by 12 foot room. All the families mm. were given one room to live in. Like a dorm. Basically. Yeah, like a dorm. Mm-hmm. She's living with her stepmother who is physically abusive toward her. Her father, who it seems is pretty distant. Yeah. Um, or at least just kind of not emotionally there all the time. Mm-hmm. There, there's no outlet. There's no nothing. So I think yeah. one just kind of general story that is told in the background of her case is that one time when she was eight years old, she is with a group of three other girls, and they're given the opportunity to visit another refugee camp. Hmm. So it's just like the most exciting thing she's had happen to her in the last four years. Yeah. So they go to visit the refugee camp, and she just sees it as, I finally get to have time. I finally get time away from my family and with friends. Mm. However, on the return trip, for whatever reason, the caravan she was in was running late. So she went just with the other girls. Her parents weren't out with her. Mm. So the caravan ended up having to rent a room overnight. So she had to spend the night with the caravan and not at home. This, apparently, to her family and within the camp was absolutely appalling. Hmm. That a girl would ever spend the night outside of the home, outside of her family, was so taboo, unless you're married, you never leave your family. You never spend a night outside of your family. That's so interesting. I mean, she's only eight, so... She's only eight, but it seemed that at least her stepmother did not care. Her stepmother mm. took this, berated her, called her a prostitute, further verbally abusing her. Oh, jeez. For being eight years old and not coming home one night. Wow. Because she was stuck in a caravan. Mm-hmm. Completely okay. outside of her control. Yeah, so we know what we're working with here as far as stepmom. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you want to go with the evil stepmom trope, here it is. Mm, yeah. I guess unsurprisingly to me at least... Remember, I did my my dissertation on adolescent girl development. I remember it well. I read it cover to cover. Thank you. You had You're to welcome. edit it. I had to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> but Kao Belong began to rebel. Mm-hmm. She began to refuse to do chores. She started talking back. She was angry. Um, she didn't see anybody as taking care of her, so why would she listen and abide? Yeah. And nobody was. So... Okay. You can't blame that logic, no. you know, coming from a preteen. No. When she was 12 years old, her mother locked her out of the house or the housing barracks. Wow. So when nighttime came, like she was locked out during the day, when nighttime came and she still wasn't allowed to go inside the house, who's there but a handsome 17-year-old martial arts instructor, Tao Hang? Mm. Ah, I wondered when we were going to meet him. Okay. Tao Hang is described as, quote, smitten with her. Smitten with the 12-year-old girl. Creepy. And he took her home to his family for the night. Hmm. And there are different stories about how this is about to proceed. Honestly, it feels like just kind of based on how you want to frame this next part of her life. Hmm. Okay. Some stories would say that they had a... Typical dating relationship for the culture. 
and would describe them as teenagers in love. Okay. Others would say that once her spent the night in the home with another man, quote, her reputation was ruined and her family didn't want her. She had no choice but to marry. Wow. Okay. Interesting. I will let you choose which one of those you're going to go with. You know, it's so interesting because they both depend on, like, looking at it through, like, a cultural lens. Mm -hmm. But they're also both so different. Like, you're looking at the same culture with kind of two different forks. Yeah. You know? You have two completely different lenses to look at this situation. Yeah. Like, was this normal? Because that age and that age difference would have been normal for that culture. Mm -hmm. Or was this um, a product of great shame? Yeah, but it feels like those are two very different options. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I will say just kind of in in my understanding from researching this case, marrying young was not odd for this culture or honestly for any subsistence or farming agricultural Mm -hmm. community. But young meaning 16-ish? Yeah. Yeah, like post-pubescent, you would generally think, yeah. Yeah. This is 12, and... It seemed like everybody really thought that this, looking back, felt that this was young. But needless to say, Hang's family and clan refused to comment on the story. So Mm. Tao Hang's family and his clan have refused to give any further information on this. Interesting. I want to know what she looks like. I got to get a visual. You're going to find it come up with some creepy pictures. Really? With her arrest photos. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay, go on. Okay. So, but either way, however you choose to interpret this story, on October 10th, 1986, at the age of 12, her is married to Tao Hang in a traditional Hmong ceremony blessed by the elders. Mm. So the elders and the clan leaders are something we're going to kind of come back to a couple of times in this story. Again, if you kind of remember our Hang Lee episode, I talked about how there are 18 Hmong clans and right. naming conventions are passed down within your clan. So there is a mm. finite number of surnames. Right. It goes obviously beyond just last name and the clans are really kind of pillars of their community. They're kind of how you just divide up, you know, the community right. and the culture. And each clan has an elder Hmm. that they work together to, in a traditional sense, kind of just be general community leaders to advise and to address conflicts as they come up in the community and marriages and childbirths and all of that stuff. They Hmm. all kind of consult on and approve. And if you need advice, if you're struggling, these are the people that you go to within the community. Right, right. It's kind of a parental figure within the community. Exactly. Yeah. Most people recall the marriage between her and Hang as a happy event. Mm. Her moved in with Hang's family, including his parents and kind of a typical multi-generational household. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's kind of reported that her continued to be physically abused now by Hang's mother. So her mother-in-law. What the hell? Hang was reportedly rarely in the home, and her became responsible for taking care of Hang's mother and siblings. Hmm. That's interesting. Her gave birth to their first child, Hua A. Hang, on June 19, 1987. Hmm. 
So she is 13. Yeah. It really seemed like after this, she was having a very, very hard time coping. Well, I mean, my the, my first, like, just knee-jerk thought was her poor body at 13. I know. Oh, my God. I know. Going through that. Just the physicality of it at 13. You're not done even growing no. at 13. No. Nowhere close. Unless you're me and you were done at 10, but whatever. <laughs> um. I still don't think I've reached my adult hips, so. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you possibly have a healthy pregnancy and postpartum period as a 13-year-old new mom? How do you possibly? Even I mean, cultural context is important, but there's not a lot of contemporary cultures that do that that young as a custom. So, he was born June 19th. She would have been about 12 when she got pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really just that alone tells you one thing about what you need to know about that relationship. And again, that and that's yeah. I don't know how much to put aside my cultural lens, right? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. Cuz I also like there's also just that point at which like you stop developing for yourself because you have to develop as a parent instead. Mm-hmm. So there's all of this maturation and brain. Your, your brain is so solidifying. squishy at 12. Yeah. That like now is going to have a totally different wiring to it. Oh, the branching that's happening in the midst of all this trauma in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like take this marriage aside, the cultural trauma that she's experiencing and the family trauma that she's experiencing. Anyway, so okay, go on. Her mother-in-law said that her would refuse to even touch the baby, and that she was afraid of it for the first year of its life. Wow. So was the mother-in-law kind of taking care of the baby? If you actually go back and read like, can, like newspaper reports from at the time, Hang's family will give one picture of the world. Mm. Yeah, sure. And because her only speaks through a social worker Mm. and like a couple of other like official members. But there Mm. are a lot of other kind of Hmong leaders and Hmong community like activists that are very much telling a different story. Got it. That is so it makes you unsure what the what is you'll never have the full story because it's coming from so many different places. It was very hard reading kind of reports because I would like read this newspaper report and it interviewed a lot of Hang's family members and they would say all of these terrible things about she was a monster and she never cared for her kids and she was an inept mother from the get-go mm. and then you would read other reports from like oh like this kind of social service worker kind of spoke out or this kind of like Hmong women's rights worker spoke out and was like this is the things you need to understand about the context right. here. And I, I want to understand that context. I mean, like you were saying, it's a struggle to them. Like, how do you also, when do you and don't you put away that cultural lens? Mm-hmm. Because we're still going to be looking at an insane, insane crime. We're at looking the end at of an insane incident at the end of the day. So. It reminds me a lot of 
Lisa Montgomery from the Bobby yeah. Joe Stinnett case. Yeah. You know? Oh, it did. Yeah. Honestly, I, I never remembered this case growing up. I don't think that I had ever heard of it, but I was always really, really intrigued by the Andrea Yates case. Yeah. It was probably one of the first like real life psychological cases yeah. mm-hmm. that got me really interested into what was happening to this woman inside of her mind and inside of her yeah. mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. And this obviously is very much like that case. Yeah, you get every little step along the way. Like, I'm so curious to hear what else is going to happen to this woman, you know, in the next 10 years, which is all we have between essentially the birth of her first child and crazy. Yeah, and the death of the six. Good night. On that note, we're going to keep on going. Okay. On January 1st, 1988, Hang, Her, and Kao Ai finally get approval to immigrate to the U.S. Mm. They land in St. Paul, Minnesota, with tens of thousands of other refugees. Welcome to Minnesota, Hmong capital of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Later that same year, September 22nd, their second son, Samson, is born. Mm. In November 1988, uh, local social service agencies notice that Hang is struggling. She's not even 15 yet. She has two children and very limited supports. Two very young children. Very, very young children. They're basically like Irish twins. Mm Mm-hmm. So social services begins a series of off and on encounters. It seems like kind of throughout the next few years, social services is is in and out of this family's life. They never seem to be consistent or ongoing in the ways that these services need to be in order to be really effective. Mm. That said, I have also worked in community mental health and social services, and Jesus, it's hard. Yeah, no, it is. Everything from engagement to having enough workers to, Mm -hmm. like, the thing that's not lacking is the drive of the clinician, but everything else is lacking. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, education's exactly the same way, right? Like, you see all of this stuff from the outside, and it's not for lack of effort on the inside. You know what I mean? And I think something that really comes up in this case is you've got a bunch of social workers in Minnesota (laughs) with no cultural context that are just flooded with these refugees with this completely different language and cultural background. and From this very, very unique place, yeah. Yeah. So over the next five years, her will have four more children. Wow. Five and four. Wait, four and five years. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. October 7th, 1989, Nali Hang, their first daughter, is born. April 27th, 1991, Tang Lung, their youngest son. July 10th, 1992, I Hang, their second daughter. And then July 21st. 1993, Tang Ki, their youngest daughter, is born. Wow. Those are so close together. It's dizzying even to think about. Like, you're basically never not pregnant if you're her. No. So from the time that she is 12, she's Mm -hmm. basically been pregnant or postpartum. Wow. At the same time, she also managed to enroll and graduate from high school. Did she really? Yeah. Good for her. She graduated from high school in 1993, Hmm. and so she would have been kind of late in her pregnancy with Tang Ki, Hmm. and apparently this was just like the happiest time in her life. 
Yeah. Like, she was finally starting to see, like, a really positive future for her. She completed her education. She started to work full-time. She wanted to get her real estate license. From the reports, it seemed like she actually picked up on the language, and she picked up on American culture very, very quickly. Mm. It was something that she actually, she did not shy away from. And at her young age, like, yeah, that brain is just growing. It is fun. That's true. It's a really good time to be learning that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So she got a full-time job. So the plan was that she worked full-time and Tao Hang took care of the children because Hmm. he was having a lot more struggle learning the language. So Uh, to her, this just made sense, right? Yeah. She's got this, quote-unquote, the skills to be involved in the workforce in a way Mm -hmm. that he hasn't quite learned yet. Yeah. Her said that she wanted to start a business and she wanted to earn enough money to buy her dad a car. Hmm. Did her extended family, like her parents and... Her in-laws, did they come to the U.S. when they did as well, or was it just the small family unit? It seems like uh, Hang's family came, Mm. and hers father and his wife came as well. I believe her biological mother, who's going to re-enter the picture in a bit, came later and actually settled in Michigan. Interesting. I did not expect to hear that she was going to resurface. Yeah. Okay. Keeping me on the hook. All right. I I don't know. This is just a case full of surprises. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) So her started working full-time at a call center. Um, She also wanted to pursue some training to become a translator. Hmm. Ambition. We love this, right? Yeah, we do. We really do. However, it seemed like the more she advanced and the more goals she set for herself and the more confidence and independence she gained, the more problems she and Hang had. Hmm. Over the next several years, they would see an increase in conflict and arguments that would start to turn physical. Mm. It would seem that the abuse and the accusations would go both ways. Oh, okay. That was, I was just about to ask, do we have an aggressor, you know? They, it, and again, like, we won't ever actually know. Mm. It appears that they were both aggressors. One may be more than the other. Gotcha. Social services, again, would just keep kind of getting involved, but not being able to stay involved. And I think another thing that people don't always recognize with social services is they're not allowed to stay involved unless you let them. Yes. Yeah. That's really easy to forget. It's like you can't just like knock down people's doors all the time, you know? And even if you do, like social services doesn't get warrants. We don't get to just enter people's houses. Yeah, no. There have been plenty of times as a therapist, especially when I was working in public health, that I'm like, can we please just, like, court mandate this? But you can't. It takes a lot to court mandate treatment. Yeah, I mean, you can get there, but it takes so much documentation and proof. And honestly, like, it takes a lot of extremity. Like, it has to be pretty far down the rabbit hole before you can really get that stuff mandated. I got to be a special exemption for a court mandated treatment, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, it- I guess. It was one of those weird, like, oh, you picked me. Because <laughs> yeah. I had seen the girl, I had seen the client before they were court mandated. And when she went to court, she had this very, like, you know, attitude-ish, like, I'm going to go with mix my therapist. And mm. the judge is like, whatever, clank. <laughs> <laughs> Does she have a therapist? Cool. <laughs> this one sounds all right. <laughs> Basically. So the mom yeah. showed up with a bunch of this paperwork that I had to go send to her lawyer. Oh, dang. That's yeah. interesting. Anyway, so her and Hang 
because of all of this kind of extremeness in their relationship, all of this conflict, they would present to the heads of the clans. Hmm. The, the clans, again, kind of representing those broader aspects of the community, elder leadership and whatnot, guidance and consultation. The two presented to the clans to get advice. What do we do? We are constantly fighting. This is getting in the way. Hang is accusing her of not taking the children. Her is accusing Hang of being abusive and being unsupportive. Hmm. The elders are supposed to give them guidance, help to stop the violence, help to tell them where to go with this. Some reports, and again, I take these reports from within the community themselves. Right. That after this incident, many women would come forward and they would say that the elders would basically tell you simply to obey your your husband, come home on time, and all of that. That it never actually resolved anything. Yeah. I shouldn't say never. I shouldn't say never, but many women would report that they didn't feel supported by the elders. Gotcha. It was also said that Hang told the elders that her was ill-equipped to raise her children because she had such a short temper. Initially, the elders would say, oh, these are like routine arguments for families. You know, this is just early stages of a marriage. But then Hang's mother, so her mother-in-law, would come forward yet again and complain her is bucking monk traditions. She's not dressing right. She's not acting right. She's acting like a runaway teenager. She's refused to take care of the children. She's refused to take on her traditional role. So at one point, the elders advised her, go to Michigan and stay with your mother. Take the children to Michigan with your mother. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Basically saying the two of you need time apart and... Mm -hmm. And her's mother said, yes, come, promised, hang, I will take care of the children, I will make sure that they're loved, I will make sure that her heals and does whatever she needs to do. Hmm. So her and the children stayed in Michigan for a few months, but again, for whatever reason that we don't know, her and the children would eventually return to Minnesota and to hang. Gotcha. I mean, it's a lot. It's a Six lot. Kids is a lot. Yeah. And she's still, she's so young. She's about 20 at this time. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in 1996. So 22. 22. Yeah. yeah. Her returns to Minnesota in 1996. Within that year, police would be called to the home 16 times for domestic violence. That was my next question. You keep beating me to my questions. I'm like, okay, when does the police involvement begin with this family and and how early in this whole thing do we start to see those neglect calls especially start to come in i'm really curious about that i'm gonna run through because you act like i don't write these like asking oh and tommy's gonna be like well what about this <laughs> and i'm like typey 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 it's annoying that you know me that well but okay i'll roll with it do you not do that no i do but still i like to think i'm such a mystery mm, that's cute <laughs> Anyway, so I'm going to run through a series of events that would happen through 1997 and 1998, okay? Yes, please. Starting in April 1997, the police are once again called to the house when her points a gun at Hang. Oh. Now, Hang accused in his side of the story that this 
pointing of the gun was completely unprovoked and that she not only threatened him, but threatened the children. Hmm. Her, however, told police that Hang had come into the house with three men demanding $3,000 to return to Laos to marry another woman. What the heck? And saying that if she didn't give him the money, that all three of them would beat her. And that's when she grabbed the gun. If she didn't give them the money. Wow. Okay. And so that is kind of why we don't have any answers to any of this. Yeah, Um, that's really confusing. Like, that's wildly confusing. It feels so left field. Wildly different stories, right? Yeah. And we're just going to keep on going with stories like this. And I, mm. I'll i be curious as to which which side you start to, which, which side you end up on. Yeah. May 19th, 1997, Hang and her finally go through with a divorce with the blessing of the clans. Mm. Although they initially agreed to separate the children, the girls with her and the boys with Hang, her ended up taking all of the children. She would say because Hang refused to take the children. Hmm. But of course, that's not where their problems end. Right. Only six days later, on May 25th, Hang travels to the apartment where her was living with the children. So they're divorced. They're in different homes now. He calls her from outside, standing below the window, trying to scream and get her attention. When he gets her attention, he yells and he says he would rather die than be without her. And her watches Hang drink a bottle of herbal poison and run off. Huh? Her calls 911 to Hang's apartment, where Hang is found disoriented and is later taken to the hospital. So, just to clarify, the story, that story came from her? Yes. But was verified because police had to take Hang to the hospital and he confirmed it. Gotcha. Okay. So he did say that that's what happened? Yes. Interesting. Just a few days later, May 28th, 1997, Hang goes to her's workplace and threatens to take her life. Whoa. The very next day, her files for an order of protection. Yeah. However, it's denied weeks later when neither of them attends the court date. Mm. Her would go on to say that she couldn't go because Hang held her against her will, so she couldn't attend. Hmm. Held her how? Held her in the home, locked her in the home. Mm. Have we heard from Hang about that day? No. Okay. So then now we're going to be in November 1997. Her is raped by a co-worker and experiences ongoing sexual harassment by her boss. Oh, my God. She files police reports on both of these cases, which go nowhere, and there's little to no action on this case, despite the work of her lawyer, who really tried to push this forward. The courts yeah. did not take it. Wow. I mean, you think about a woman who's already approaching the edge, and then something like that happens. It's another new trauma like she's reliving all these old traumas and then here's this brand new one that happens in the midst of all this you've got a couple more traumas to go okay in january of 1998 hang tells police that her called and threatened to kill him Hmm. her denied this and in response hang threatens to kill her's boyfriend 
And I'm not sure the situation on this boyfriend. I see it mentioned a few places, but only ever by Hang, that mm. he alleged that her had a 16-year-old boyfriend that was in a gang. Interesting. Apparently, street gangs were an increasing problem in the Hmong community at this time. Yeah. As will happen in, you know, poverty and adjustment. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally, totally. I, I don't doubt that part. I'm curious about the boyfriend. I, I am, too. I really am, mm. too. It's scattered in a couple of places, but... Again, only kind of by him and his family. Yeah. So then in February 1998, I think this is the one that put her over the edge. Mm. Her goes to the police to report that her eldest daughter, Nali, was sexually assaulted by someone that Hang had brought into the home. Oh, no. Nali was nine years old. And police go to interview her and her siblings about this event. Mm-hmm. Nali was able to give details about what happened and give a description of the two people who assaulted her. Wow. One of her brothers is able to name at least one of the men and said that it was someone that his dad played basketball with that he had seen in the home several times. Okay. Police were able to track down this person. However, because he was a minor, they did not press charges and no information was released about the offender. Wow. I mean, yeah, with a minor offender, like, you're not going to find anything on the record, but that seems like a horrific injustice that is happening as a offshoot of this case, too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But, okay, so this was somebody... Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, the community is going to be real tight-knit. Like, I understand that. So this mm-hmm. the kid knew this perpetrator as a friend of his dad hangs yeah yeah that's really interesting because then that makes you wonder like okay was hang in the house that day too mm-hmm. why is this person in, in the, the house, house if that's the person that he knows in the family you know mm-hmm. or is he the alleged underage boyfriend the brother had said no this is one of dad's friends that dad plays basketball with mm. didn't mention that it was the boyfriend okay yeah. Yeah. And with minors, like you just, there's a limit to the information that you can get. And, you know. Yeah. And kids' memories and mm-hmm. like the the language that they can give to give a description. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's just kind of a like, well, okay, we know that that happened. We're not going to know any more detail about it. We're not going to know who the who was on that. I, again, the police were able to track this person down. So they knew who yeah. it was. But, but we don't get to know that. We don't get to know that. Which yeah. means that we have a puzzle piece missing from the story right right now in the midst of all of this her is trying to work full-time like again absolute minimum wage Mm -hmm. just desperately trying to financially support her children and her needs she had reportedly told people she's like i know i'm poor i know everybody hates me because i'm poor Hmm. nobody believes anything i say because i'm poor that's so sad and, I mean, she's got everything working against her. A question I forgot to ask. Do you know how close Hang ended up living to her? Like, same housing project or, like? Not the same housing project, but I feel like within a couple of miles. Okay. So still, like, relatively easy access. Yeah, like, you probably could have walked there or taken a city bus. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But kind of another hit that comes with stuff like this is because of the divorce the rumors the gossip it's a lot of oh her's a bad mother her is neglectful Mm -hmm. her can't take care of her kids she's bucking tradition and she's not following our culture 
she lost a lot of friends. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And a lot of support. Yeah. She was able to find one friend that would babysit for her at times, but she's still really struggling. In April of 1998, social services is called because Hang saw her at a party. So that means he knew that the children were at home alone. Home alone, yeah. With only the 11-year-old Kwa A left to watch his siblings. Mm. So he calls social services to charge her with neglect. Got it. Okay. And her says, kind of her defense of this is whatever defense we want to think of it as was, I needed to find a husband. That's why I was at this party. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. In May of that same year, social services would again be called with charges of neglect when Samson misses school. Mm. And then throughout the summer, just a bunch of little things. She's ticketed and charged with a misdemeanor for not being able to prove car insurance. Her car gets impounded. Her landlord tells her that he might have to kick her out because her name was never on the lease after the divorce and Mm. she never filed the paperwork. And then after she scrambles to do all of that, he tells her that, oh, the payment on the subsidized housing is going to double and you have to pay back pay. Jeez. Meanwhile, the calls and threats from Hang are continuing. She says that he is calling and threatening to kill her every single day. Hmm. So she's finally granted an order of protection from Hang for one year. Hmm. So he's not supposed to have contact with her for a year, which... I'll give you a guess about how well he recognized that. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, did that extend to the kids as well? None of what I read was clear on that, but her felt like it extended to the kids. I mean, like, logistically, it kind of has to. Like, how are you going to get a hold of your five-year-old without going through... The mother, yeah. The mother, yeah. And I think now orders of protection have some kind of, like... There's much more specificity to mm-hmm. it. Like, oh, you have to have, like, a social service worker meet you at this McDonald's, and then you mm-hmm. do the trade-off. That kind yeah. of thing. I don't think that happened in 1998. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sure it did in some places, but we're also talking about, like, a severely underserved community. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, again, Hang did not love this or respect it very well. And this, this bugs me because it feels so manipulative. And maybe mm-hmm. this is me being oversensitive to it. But so Hang and his mother go to her home under the pretense of, oh, we need to bring food to the children. Mm. So they go knock on the door. And in the interview, they really like in the newspaper interviews, they really pretend like this is so sweet and innocent of like, oh, we just needed to feed the children because we knew that her wasn't capable of feeding the children. Her refuses to let them in and tells the children Mm. not to answer it. Interesting. And this incident is used against her in the papers. Just time after time. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that makes it, I mean, it sounds like, you know, she was neglecting, Mm -hmm. allowing her kids have a good meal. Oh, you prevented your your children from seeing their dad. I don't know. It's just Mm -hmm. classic manipulation. Yeah, yeah. Reading every bit of that in the interview before I even finished all the research on this case, I was like, that's a dick move. Red flaggy. Red flaggy. But as red flaggy as that is, that's going to bring us to September 3rd, 1998. Right, right. Anything you want to talk about before we talk about that whole day? I 
just feel as though like one thing that really kind of sticks out to me like a sore thumb here is that all of the complaints are towards each other. Mm -hmm. Like they're not, I mean, okay. So like the neglect call about Samson not going to school, obviously that came from the school. And remind me what the other, the first neglect call was. Hang made that call. Hang made that call because her was at the party. Was at the party. That's right. That's right. So other than those two instances, like the kids do not seem to be involved in the infighting between the couple. No. And for what it's worth, I did. Well, we're going to talk about the kids. Like I definitely want to give them some attention. Mm -hmm. But for when I would look back at like what, okay, what did people actually say about these kids? Did they look like they were being abused? Did they look like they were being neglected? Yeah. And everyone said that they looked like happy, healthy, rambunctious, energetic kids. Yeah. And that's, that's my big question is like, it sounds like a really acrimonious and horrific divorce and a lot of infighting between Hang and her, but I have not yet heard anything that insinuates that anybody was abusing the children. No, except the incident against Nali. Yeah. And that's what I'm really confused about. Yeah. Because that's what she would say later, right? I was trying to save them from being abused so who were you saving them from yourself from your ex-husband from the unnamed perpetrator of that sexual assault like who is the who in her mind is the enemy here is what i'm really really curious about i feel like and this is kind of my speculation i feel like her saw the entire community as the enemy Mm. that the community and the culture that raised her was the enemy Yeah, and she's not getting her support, so she can't count on her kids to get that support by extension. Yeah. Yeah. And that I feel like she saw poverty as the enemy. Mm -hmm. Which it is. Poverty is the enemy. God, when I read, and then she got a ticket, and then she got the car impounded, and then the landlord said And the housing doubles, yeah. I was like, God, if anyone who has been poor doesn't know that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally, totally. And yeah, and I think that it was, she just saw the world as abusive toward her. Mm. And I think that she saw the world as, this is going to ruin me and it's going to ruin my children by extension. Yeah. And I guess like that's, that's what I just keep wondering is like, that's where the disconnect is for me between all of those events and September 3rd. Like she makes a degree of sense when you look at her timeline, but the crime, the murders itself still don't make sense Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like she makes sense as a woman on the edge of madness, right? But the that day doesn't make sense. So I'm really curious about what we know about that day. But I think that it's important. And I, I think about this a lot when we talk about mental illness, when we talk about trauma responses, is that being on the brink of madness, how much like quote unquote sense are we looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a yeah. logical thinking doesn't happen. Right. You know, we we always talk about like crime and mental illness and all of this and like, oh, that doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense. Well, mm-hmm. we're talking about mental health and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're always hunting for a why, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and sometimes the why is, well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that morning of September 3rd, sorry, Murder Beagle is just nesting like fucking crazy. Aww. 
That morning of September 3rd, neighbors would say that they saw the younger children playing out in the front yard like normal. Nothing seemed odd at all. They're running around. They're doing little kid stuff. One neighbor recalled that he saw some of the older children kind of in the upstairs window just hanging out, watching their little brothers and sisters play around. Mm. And he saw a slight woman wearing an ornate silk dress calling the children in. Yeah, that's interesting, too, the silk dress detail. So I thought this was interesting because some news reports would say, oh, it was like a red party dress or a red dancing dress. Others would say it was a silk red ceremonial dress. Hmm. The red dress to me is so, it's symbolic of something. Yeah, it feels like a key because I think the third option is like, is it just a silk nighty and she's just like chilling in her nighty all day? Yeah, you know? yeah. But if it's ceremonial, mm-hmm. that would, I mean, that would take this, that takes this day in a totally level. different direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. My head goes ceremonial, but mm-hmm. that, that could just be a bias here. Yeah, I think like we want it to be that because it's so interesting, mm-hmm. right? It, it adds, adds a little like, like a, romantic. It adds some color yeah, to it, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, it's like, ah. like when you said that at first, I pictured like a silk nighty, like a, you know, kind of a, like a sexy nightgown. Yeah, kinda. yeah. Those are shockingly comfortable, by the way. You know, they really are. They really are. <laughs> that was um, when I, <laughs> uh, one summer in college, I managed an adult store. And... <laughs> I was very young and very inexperienced in um, the sensual arts. So after like 60 days, you got to use your discount. Um, And (laughs) well, when I got to my 60 days, all I wanted was a silk nighty Mm -hmm. because I was like, I'm not going to buy like, you know, a glass dildo. Like I just (laughs) want a silk nighty. Like it looks so cozy. So I bought one, and the only size that we had had left in stock was a 3X. So I just had this, like, (laughs) much too big for me, like, completely delightful, was supposed to be sexy, but wasn't because it didn't fit, silk nighty that I just cherished. So maybe that's my own bias, thinking that that's what that was, but... There are totally times, and I feel like I can't do it when my partner's here, because he'll think it's, like, sexy time, but I just want to be, like, fucking... Joan Crawford-esque, just, like, walking around my house in, like, silk Mm. robes and silk nightgowns and... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I totally empathize with that. And he'd be like, ooh, it's sexy time. And I'm like, no. (laughs) Like, no. (laughs) This is comfy time. This is for me. (laughs) This is me time, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there's no better way to segue. Sorry. We need to do humor break because that was just a lot of trauma. Yeah, it was. It was. So I hope no one takes it as like, wow, they're so disrespectful. Like, I I don't know. I needed a moment there before we talk about the events of this day. I I, I think we all just needed a moment to like breathe for a second. So yeah. Okay. So let's take a deep breath and go back into it. Okay. Okay. Now, reports would be that throughout the day, beginning at around 11 o'clock, her would call the children in one by one at varying points of the day, mm. starting with the oldest and moving down to the youngest, take one each into a separate room and strangle them privately without the others present to see. Wow. Systematic. Mm-hmm. Each child was strangled with a piece of black cloth, which was the cause of death in each of them. 
After she had strangled all six of the children, her tied an electrical cord around her neck and the other end to a light fixture and attempted to hang herself. I see. However, the light fixture broke and her fell to the ground from the second story. Oh, wow. She was alive but disoriented. It's believed that she tried to make a second attempt on her life and strangle herself a second time, but there was just nothing that she could do. Mm. And that's when she finally called 911. Interesting. She confesses to the dispatcher, I don't know why I killed my children. She doesn't know why, but I, I just feel like she's got more to say about that. I think it's really interesting that she... Uh, in thinking about it as a murder-suicide, that she was aiming for such a similar methodology for Mm -hmm. killing herself as for killing her children. Yeah. I think that's... I wonder if there's something to that, too. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, she she had access to a gun at one point. We know that. But she chose not to use it. Yeah. You know? Um, So that's... That, too, feels kind of symbolic. Like, what what was that for her? Yeah. You know? Did she think that that was the most painless way to do it to them? Did she think, Mm. you know, I I don't know what. Yeah. Well, it's not, and it's monstrous, and those children just, I'll be thinking about them all week. I want to talk about kind of just like how this played out afterward, her sentencing. Yeah. So she was assigned an attorney. Um, His name was Bruce Wagner. And honestly, he tried his damnedest to help Mm. her. He really did. He would initially claim that there was no evidence that she did any of this. He proposed theories that her husband did it, that it was gang related. He claimed that the 911 call, first of all, he claimed that he didn't have access to the 911 call, that he only had Mm. the transcript that was published in the Minnesota papers. Mm. But then he said that because of her accent and her broken English, that it should be inadmissible. It's all interpretation. We don't know what she actually said. We don't know if that was even actually her. He was looking for a reason to get that thrown out. That's really interesting. Her under... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) No, I'm just, I'm curious. And I, I know that in moments of, like, distress and trauma, we tend to, all of us, like, regress in our speech and in our mannerisms and stuff like that. I just... It occurred to me, like, she, her English was proficient enough that she worked in a call center, Mm -hmm. but the 911 call being unintelligible, I'm guessing that that was really more, at the end of the day, probably more a product of the distress than the accent. I think the distress and the loss of of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, because she would have been probably pretty disoriented when she made that call. She was really disoriented when she made the call. But yeah, like, her English was apparently pretty, like, she might have had an accent, but her, her English was pretty good. Yeah, like understandable, you know, yeah. At her pretrial hearing, she entered a plea of not guilty. And she underwent uh, several weeks of psychiatric observation, both paid for by the state and paid for privately because Wagner argued that the evaluation done by the state was biased. It was proposed that she was experiencing PTSD with uh, possible dissociative disorder. You don't need to add on the dissociative disorder. That's a symptom of PTSD. Yeah, I mean, it also, I mean, uh, that makes sense as a diagnosis for her. Mm-hmm. And, 
again, is his speculation. I can see her dissociating that entire day. Mm. I, I can see it happening. And we've talked about... I mean, I can see her dissociating her entire life, to be honest. God, like, right? Yeah. <sighs> like, that's a that's kind of a better option in many ways than facing what she was facing as, like, a, mm-hmm. you know, a defense mechanism. And that's basically what the evaluator said, that she's basically splitting off her experiences and her life into these different parts, going on autopilot when she needs to, but she's not processing all of these traumas. She's yeah. dissociating from the world around her. Right. Her affect was really off. Uh, did You looked up some of the photos of her. Did you see the one with the big smile? Yes. I noticed that in many of her, also in many of her updated mugshots, she's also smiling. Like, yeah. And this isn't like a say cheese for the camera. Like, it looks gleeful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pull those back up real quick. Now, so what's interesting is that they described her as having a flat affect when asked about her children. But then she has that big gleeful smile. Yeah. And when we look as professionals at that mismatched affect, we're like, what is, you're not in this world with us. Yeah, so that's something that kind of tells you professionally that you're not, like, in the moment with us like understanding what's going on yeah or comprehending what's going on on like the deep level that you need to be understanding it and apparently she would tell you know evaluators she's like i miss my kids i i hmm. i, I want to see my kids again yeah i mean in all of her pictures she's other than the one which i take to be the original one from that day mm-hmm. but everything else it's like her updated pictures or her like probably the ones that were taken at like status conferences and stuff like that it's a gleeful smile when she's face on and when she's to the side, it's almost kind of like a haughty, like, um, regal almost sort of look. Yeah. It's very off. Very off. Yeah. None of it matches. None of it matches. Any of the situation whatsoever. Like if you told me, I would think like if I had just Googled her not knowing that this was a an investigative case, I would just think it was, like, her driver's license picture, yeah. and she was, like, really happy to be at the DMV, to be totally honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. By the time they finally reached trial with this case, her had a choice. Mm. She could plead not guilty by reason of insanity, and to be honest, I think that they would have had a case. Yeah. I, d- I don't know if it would have, they would have gotten it, but they would have had a case. Mm. If they lost that case, though, she would be facing a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Yeah, yeah. Or she could plead guilty and get the opportunity to one day be paroled. She's 24 hmm. years old. I'm uh, I'm going to come down a lot harder than I usually do, I think, on this one. Yeah. I mean, this is not somebody that seems equipped to be out in the world one way or the other. Great. I agree. And this was a monstrous, monstrous crime. A systematic crime. Yes. And so, like, like in thinking about, you know, this is, what, episode 45 for Mm -hmm. us, like, thinking back about 45 cases, the level of extremity to this scene and to this case and to these victims, to me, feels amongst, like, the top ones that we've looked at. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, like, as much as I understand the systemic issues and I understand the mental health issues... I'm having a much harder time putting that into play than I 
have another situation yeah. to be totally honest yeah. with you yeah it, it's i mean this is this is six babies this is six little kids systematically over the course of an entire day called one by one into a house for execution like that's what that scene was it hits different when it's kids when it's mm-hmm. the perpetrator's kids and there's six of them like you had to do that six times this wasn't like a i mean andrea yates was a, a monstrous crime too but she, i mean she killed all of her ch- killed ch- kids at once right like this is somebody that systematically over the course of a day mm-hmm. executed her children one by one. Yeah, this is very much to me the definitive like hold two thing. Yeah, a lifetime of trauma, but also you killed your six children. Yeah, yeah, and I can hold those two things absolutely, but I do not think that this is a situation where I would feel comfortable knowing that she was pearled. Yeah. Well, let me finish. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) How uncomfortable am I about to be? (laughs) So she decided to plead guilty. Mm. Um, By this time, it was deemed that she understood what she did and why she did it. At her hearing, she shared that she took her children's life because she wanted to die. And she said, quote, if I die, then nobody would love my children. I know I was wrong taking their lives, but they don't have to suffer no more. I have a new life, prison, but I know my kids are safe. I did it for love. Wow. Yeah, I'm not even sure I have the words to react to that. Honestly, like, it does, I know, it does ring clear to me that, like, the enemy in her life is all those systems working against her. The, en- the enemy is everyone, right? Yeah. It's everyone and it's everywhere and it's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. You know? So at the age of 25, she was sentenced to two consecutive 25-year sentences and four mm-hmm. concurrent sentences mm-hmm. for a total of 50 years served. Okay. She would be eligible for parole in as little as 22 years. Hmm. meaning that at the age of 57 with good behavior she could be released interesting now this sentencing was in 1999 Mm -hmm. it is now 2021 right right i will be looking up updates for this for our next episode yeah definitely big time and I would be curious to know if if we can get any insight into how things are looking for her behaviorally, mm-hmm. what we can find out about that anecdotally. I'd be really curious. Yeah. You know, obviously this tore apart a community. Mm-hmm. The initial kind of knee-jerk reaction was a lot, a lot of anger. Yeah. Uh, obviously. And there should have been a lot, a lot of anger. Yeah. I mean, I'm angry. Like I'm sitting here angry, you know, but one of the interesting things is that actually this came only a month after another young Hmong mother killed her infant child. Really? So this was a succession of a few events that really kind of pushed forward this conversation of like, Mm. what are we doing to our women? Yeah. Yeah. And if we want to find a grain of hope in this one, there was a big change in government services and how they were procured. Mm. The government system started working a lot closer to the culture and to the community. 
they they actually moved a police center into that apartment complex. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. They expanded mental health services. They started training Hmong people, offering scholarships and study for licensure for counselors and social workers and psychologists. Okay. Well, that's good. There's a green. Yeah. So that's... That's hmm. about all I have to offer for that. Mm. But before I go, I do want to want to talk a little bit about these six little babes. Yeah. Well, like I said, for what it's worth, everything that their parents went through, extended family, teachers, all said that these were just happy kids, sweet kids, smart, playful, loving kids. Mm. And I want to just give a little bit about each one. Yeah. Kao Hang, or Kao A. Hang, was 11 years old in fourth grade. Um, he was considered to be kind of a pillar of support for his younger sibling. We older siblings tend to do that. <laughs> he was just considered to be a sweetheart. He was very outgoing. His teacher, Linda White, remembered him as just being very kind and thoughtful. He was a big Minnesota Vikings fan. Aww. Uh, loved football. That teacher, Linda White, she said... But for Valentine's Day, he gave her a bunch of, like, fake white roses because she had mentioned one day that she was allergic to flowers, even though she liked them. So. Aww. So sweet. That's so sweet. One thing that she said after this event, she was interviewed. She said, I'll be worrying forever about these quiet children who are so cooperative. He never had a negative thing to say about his lot in life. Yeah. As a psychologist, I worry about those quiet, cooperative kids every day. <laughs> yeah, but by the same token, and I do too as an educator, because, you know, you wonder what's the line between compliance because you're a sweet kid and compliance because you're terrified, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, you know, there's still not a lot to suggest that the kids had a tough lot in life themselves that they were aware of you know know. so i'm still just i'm really stuck on that i I i'm really stuck on that i am too because it it doesn't seem like anybody was hurting me yeah and 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 we could be completely off yeah it's unreported it's unnoticed you know or whatever but other than the sexual assault on nelly which is fucking terrible Mm -hmm. and and her dealt with that appropriately but yeah anyway samson who was nine years old he was kind of like the the spokesperson for the family Hmm. um because he had the best english and he was often a translator for his parents he was always kind of seen as smiling joking very outgoing again a happy kid yeah nali was eight and she was described as more on the quiet, introverted side. She was an artistic kid. She loved writing and drawing. Tang Lung was seven and was described as bold and energetic. He loved kung fu, just like his dad. He wanted to be a kung fu teacher. Aww. A was six, described as affectionate, loving, like just wanted to hug everyone, give everyone comfort. If he saw somebody sad, he was gonna go up to them and give them a hug oh and then tang ki the youngest five described as kind of bold very strong sense of right and wrong and somebody who was willing to correct anyone including his parents including her parents <laughs> that sounds like my kid uh, yeah <laughs> yeah 
I mean, they all sound like dolls, really. Yeah. Just sweet, sweet kids. And let's take a minute and just think about them. It's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever be able to think of September 3rd the same way again, to be honest with you. Like, this one's really hitting hard. This was one of the hardest cases I think I've ever researched. Yeah. I Yeah. I almost gave up on it, but I was like, oh. Mm, push through, push through. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's a it's an important story to tell. And I think it's a really interesting story to tell from the point of view of mental health. But it's also, like, I just really don't want to lose sight of those babies. I know. I, I am very interested, like I said, in individuals who kill their family members. Yeah. I think the yeah. psychology behind how that happens, like, I just want to know. I want to yeah. know because I want to know what type of services did need to be there. Yeah. What would yeah. have you have responded to? Like, I, I'm trained in system psychology. This is how I work. I want, mm-hmm. I want to think about the prevention side of things. Yeah. And the big picture exactly. and every single contributing factor. Exactly. Yeah. And to me, like, that's kind of why I wanted to keep going with the story. Yeah. In many ways, it's a story of a system, you know. A lot of systems. In many, many ways. So many a systems. lot of systems in interplaying and resulting in an immense tragedy. Well, I'm glad that I can smell blueberry pie from downstairs because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be sleeping tonight. I told you you were going to need comfort food. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm he hasn't come up here with pie, but I'm gonna need a I'm gonna need a slice because I can smell it. <laughs> yeah, there's gonna need to be some comfort food here. Yeah, I need to yeah. go find some comfort food of some type. Yeah, listeners, indulge, treat yourselves today. Treat yourselves. That was tough. That was tough. That was tough. Go hug your yeah. babies, please. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding, and yeah, I just oof, I'm really mad. I'm this. I'm upset about this one. Yeah, I mean they're always upsetting, but yeah. I'm, I feel like this is one of those ones where I'm going to be thinking about it all week and then just, like, texting you randomly, like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 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 There's, like I said, and there's no, there's no light at the end of this tunnel. Like, yeah, we put the bad guy away, but, like. When you still have that question about what makes up a bad guy, it, it feels incomplete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, it's. Yeah, no matter how you slice it. It's one of those things I can understand every step of trauma that she went through. Mm-hmm. And I can understand the poverty and the culture clash and, you know, the constant re-victimization. Yeah. But then she takes that step. Yeah. Where does the understanding start and stop? Yeah. I'm a psychologist, so it never stops. Yeah. But, yeah. And I'm me, so I understand that it also never stops. But Yeah. But again, I'm also like, and I think I've said this before, like, it's my job for that understanding to never stop. It's not mm-hmm. everybody else's job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is going to work against what otherwise like can and cannot make sense too. you know, I remember telling my supervisor once that I wish we were more allowed to just think black and white. Yeah. Like I wish because the black and white is so much more comforting. Yeah. And I almost never do think in black and white. I just kind of wonder like, where's the threshold where like we have to come down you know yeah and and this feels like one that really really challenges that threshold in a way that I the only thing I can think of comparably is is Lisa Montgomery Mm -hmm. you know yeah 
Well, do you want to talk about what we're doing next week, or do you want me to talk about it? You talk about it. I'm done talking for today. <laughs> yeah, let's give your, your poor little voice a break. So next week is going to be really exciting in a couple of different ways, you guys, because we're going to be together <gasps> in one space, which is really nice. My family will be sleeping in the McBasement, so that'll be fun. Um, and we are going to be coming at you with some big, hefty case updates for the cases that we've covered thus far on our show Mm -hmm. so please come back for that because we'll be going over you know some cases will have none some will have quite a bit and we will just have to see what happens yeah and let the magic happen if you're wondering why it's because it's vacation season and it is (laughs) yeah yeah, this is how we can get the venn diagrams of our schedules to work out It's usually not this hard, but you know. yeah, but you know, we needed this. You know, it'll be a good catch up for me to do stories too. So yeah, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be really fruitful to go through, and I'm really looking forward to compiling all my updates into one space. Yay! Yeah, so please come back for that, you guys. Come back for that, and yeah, uh, yeah, treat yourself nice, and mm-hmm. treat everybody else nice. And That's right. Yeah, yeah. So. Maybe we should add some extras to today's sign-off. Be extra nice. Be and eat extra cheese. And be extra cheese. (laughs) Did I say be extra cheese? No, you almost did. And I was like, please say it, please say it, please say it. And then you didn't. Um, And we extra, extra extra love you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Signing off. Yay. Bye, guys. My butt's numb. I gotta readjust a little bit. Okay. I'm growing.